New Orleans may have the most famous French Quarter in the country, but did you know that San Francisco has its own historical connection to France? During the gold rush, more than 3,000 French settlers arrived here in San Francisco on a ship called the City of Paris. And even today, the French influence in San Francisco is unmistakable throughout Union Square and the theater district. Now, I myself have very fond childhood memories of visiting the Ferris wheel and Santa Claus on top of the former Emporium at Union Square. And yet, I didn't know anything about its history until just recently. On this week's episode of Beyond the Fog Radio, our guest Shelley Bradford-Bell enlightens us about the history of Union Square and the theater district. And though she wasn't born here, she's such a beloved member of the community that you'd be surprised she wasn't a native. I can't wait for you to meet her. I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yee. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. Shelly Bradford Bell is coming up, but I want to tell you a small story that you probably don't know. When we recorded her last October in 2020, the pandemic was newish and the fires had just started. So it was a pretty intense time already. And when I called Shelly, I said, Shelly, we're doing this podcast. Are you interested in being part of it? And she said, I'm very interested in being part of it. And then I told her that we record outside with masks on and we use sanitizer. And she said, Susan, I'm going to tell you, I'm terrified of COVID. And I mean, terrified. And I said, that's okay. We can record remotely. And she said, no, no, I'm terrified, but I want to do it. And I want to do it in the way that you want to do it. And she did that because Shelly is dedicated to community service and she's dedicated to community that's the most important thing for her on the planet so as terrified as she was she was able to allow us to come visit her and record her and it was pretty great Michaela what was your experience with Shelly I was just listening to us talk to Shelly again and I think what I loved most about listening to Shelly and meeting Shelly was this beautiful rainbow arc of emotion that she had. And she started off not somber, but really real about the times and what's happening and talking about people she'd lost and talking about her mother and friends and just dealing with this, but then going full throttle into her gratitude and gratefulness or of where she lives, what she does, her people, what she's doing. And I think much like when we were speaking to Rodney Fong, there's a certain amount of hope and drive to continue on, continue forward, and to just be incredibly grateful and not wallow. You know, she's one of those people where she's just like, yep, I'm moving to Paris. (laughs) I thought that was really really wonderful because who doesn't want to move to Paris at this point? I mean, I'm like right there with her. (laughs) (laughs) So much. Who doesn't miss just traveling in general? Right. Just like, come on. (laughs) 
<laughs> I know I do. Yeah. So for me, as I'm listening to our conversation with Shelly, I'm just aware of how restorative this whole process is for both Shelly and the people we interview and for us. I, I'll speak for myself to be in quarantine for the last year and to have the opportunity to have people tell their story, be heard and listened to and to just talk about fond memories. It's so healing and restorative just to be connected to people. So to be sitting in her courtyard with all these beautiful plants that the people in the building manage was amazing. It was a great little oasis in the middle of the Union Square area, the Lower Knob Hill area, the the what was the theater district. Just so cool to be able to make new friends and meet new people during this time. And sitting in the sunshine in the middle of San Francisco, in the middle of the foggy time, that was pretty beautiful as well. Totally. You know, I do remember in listening to the conversation again, Susan, you and Shelly went all the way to Africa on a project, right? Is that how you guys met? Yeah. I was very, very, very lucky. So I met Shelly several times probably before that, but more formally. And then I met her in 2003 when she hired my company, my documentary company, to document a program that she had where 10 kids from Bayview Hunters Point, which is a neighborhood in San Francisco that is primarily African-American and very much underserved, those 10 kids, because of their artwork, they got chosen to go to Senegal and to Paris, and we were hired to film them. And they had an art opening in Senegal and an art opening in Paris. And we're talking about kids who had never been really out of the neighborhood. One child went to Stockton, and that was as far as he had been. Wow. And the other kids really had not, never been anywhere, except for maybe out of their neighborhood a little bit. So for them to get on a plane and go to Senegal and go to Paris and have an art opening in each place was amazing. And that happened because Shelley made it her priority to make sure that she was going to give 10 kids an opportunity to see and open their eyes to the world. And she did it. And she did it two years in a row. And I that's, can only imagine what their, those kids look like, the faces when that plane took <laughs> off and they're like, it's happening. <laughs> that was in 2004. And now those kids are in their 20s. So that is what Shelley Bradford Bell is all about. She is community minded. It's her passion and it's what drives her. So here's Shelley. I'm Shelley Bradford Bell, and I am originally from Chicago and moved here in 1986 to San Francisco because as a five-year-old, it was my dream to live in San Francisco and Paris. And I've been here since 1986. I have served on the Environmental Commission as the vice president and on the Planning Commission as the president. And I feel like I'm a, a huge part of the history of this city that I absolutely love and adore. Mm. I took early retirement, and I have been writing. I do have one book out called Baldini's Muse. You can buy it on Amazon. And I have a book about Napa, Beyond the Vine, and that's also on uh, Amazon. But I'm writing that iconic novel that I've been writing since 2001, and it is probably in about its seventh edit. 
And that's what I've been working on is getting that done and getting phone calls from people who are trying to understand how to move through the city process uh, in this environment and who they call. And I've been helpful in that kind of way. So I've actually get up in the morning and get very busy working on the film. As I told you before, Paris, uh, Perry Noir, African-Americans in Paris. I'm not only doing their website and their blog, I'm also doing promotion of the new film and making sure people see the film on uh, Vimeo. So, You are far from retired. Far from retired, <laughs> but to me that is retirement. I ran the Bayview Opera House for 10 years. Wow. And I, uh, I did it because our community, the African-American community, needed to be engaged in its own history and its own art. My mother taught me that. And on April 2nd of this year, my mother died mm-hmm. at the age of 94. <laughs> she lived in a beautiful, long life. Oh, my God. And I made her promise to me that because uh, she was in Atlanta, she didn't want any more visitors. I said, okay, I won't come to visit, but when you die, you need to come and visit me and say goodbye. So I'm standing in my kitchen. And I'm pulling something out of the oven, and I hear my mother's voice say, that's not ready yet. Put it back. And I turn around, and I go, okay, Mommy, I'll put it back in. And I said it out loud. Wow. I put it back in because it wasn't ready yet. And I walked into my bedroom, and my sister walked in behind me and said, well, it's over. Ma just died. I said, she came to me. And I was just so excited about that. I know she's at peace. I know how happy she is. And her husband, who had died 18 years before, who she missed and loved with all her heart, his birthday is April 4th. So I was like, she got up there so they can have a birthday party. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. So, you know, I lost her. I lost Mm. a friend, a guy I dated for 12 years. I don't know if you ever met Eugene. Uh, He died age of 61 just last month, like two weeks before his 62nd birthday. Wow. And uh, so many other friends in between with this COVID. And it's been, I guess, it's been transformational. One of the things that I'm working on is a book called The Banquet List. Because I'm tired of the words bucket list. Mm. Life is a banquet. We're supposed to feast on life. It's not a bucket. I love that. You think about 250,000 people have died from COVID and they probably all had a bucket list. Mm. Right? When you have a banquet list, you do it now. Yeah. So I've been working on that, and that's why I'm doing everything that I'm doing, because it's, this moment has reminded me I wasn't even working my own banquet list. Yeah. <laughs> so I was in Paris two years ago. I ran, the, I ran five miles in the Paris Marathon. <laughs> yes. It was kind of hurtful to look back. and see, I saw this guy in a wheelchair pass me by, and I looked back, and I'm like, I am the last person on the Champs-Élysées. But I'm going to do it again. I'm going to keep trying until I make it work. You know, I'm not injured, but I need help. <laughs> I am going to be working on getting you this, let me know. this body ready. It's like I won't run anybody else's marathon. I might run their half marathon or something like that. But the first marathon I ever want to run and complete is the Paris Marathon. And I was in it for this year, but obviously it got canceled. So mm. I'm not going to do next year. But 2022, when I'm 67 years old, 
because it's always in April, so the month after my birthday. You owe me that. You gotta, yeah, you gotta, you gotta help a sister out. Not a problem. Yeah, so this is how you keep yourself alive and vibrant during crazy time, and use it as an opportunity to uh, transform. You know how you do it authentically. You don't go on a diet. You go on a diet and you eat like fourteen hundred different diet plans, Weight Watchers, da da da. Come on, I'm sixty five years old. <laughs> I know what to eat. Right. Do it authentically, and it becomes your eating plan for life. And we have to have authenticity in every single aspect of our life. And we'd be surprised how quickly change happens. That's amazing. You remind me of George Bernard Shaw's quote, Splendid Torch. Uh, Of course, now that I brought it up, I forget. Yeah. We'll look it up later. We'll we'll Google it. You know, to to have your life be of the community. Yeah. And that... um, that I'm of the belief that uh, for as long as I live, that my life belongs to the community and, you know, to let it burn as bright as you can. Well, that, that's yeah. the way, that was my mother's teaching to us, yeah. is that we serve God by serving others. Mm. For Christmas when we were kids, my mother used to make clothes and buy toys for families that didn't have anything. And before we opened our own Christmas toys, we went and delivered those. She believed in serving the community. Uh, Montu dancers, I don't know if your mom probably heard of them. Uh, Montu dancers was a big dance troupe in Chicago. And my mother bought tickets to every dance they did because we would be the only black family in the whole auditorium. She's like, we're not experiencing our own culture. And my grandfather owned a foot support shoe store in Chicago. He was the only African-American to own one in the 50-year history. It was the smallest shoe store in the whole chain, but it often came out number one or number two to the New York flagship store in terms of sales. Wow. Because we were segregated. Mm. And in segregation, we shopped our own neighborhoods. I can remember Fuller Department Store and just the vibrancy of 47th Street. And then as integration started to happen, those businesses started to die off. So my grandfather held the first Negro Business Expo in 1939. It got Parker House Sausage and Borden's Milk, which were black-owned companies, into the major grocery stores. So I have a, a history, a legacy of dedication to community that I had no other choice but to pick up the mantle and do my part. Can you describe this neighborhood, even though we were, we're on audio, but can you describe this neighborhood, where we are, and tell us a little bit mm-hmm. of the history of downtown San Francisco? Yeah, so we're, in, we're like right behind Union Square. Some people call it Union Square West. We're only about four blocks from Union Square. In 1853, about, because of the gold rush, this became a big place where they started to do a lot of development. And there were a lot of French people who came over on the ship called the City of Paris. The City of Paris is the name of the department store that is now iMagnus. So that rotunda that's up there, or is it, yeah, iMagnus. It was iMagnus, now it's, yeah. n- now it's um, Neiman Marcus. Yes, right, right. rotunda. Yeah, yeah, the rotunda. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Anyway, that rotunda... If you look at the glass, it actually is a replica of the ship, the city of Paris, that brought over the French. Then you go to Banana Republic 
on was that Sutter and Stockton mm-hmm. over there, the big building that was called the the White House Department Store. It was created by Raphael Weil, who came over from France. And when the earthquake hit, he donated thousands of pieces of clothes. Of course, the store also got damaged, but he donated thousands of pieces of clothes to the earthquake effort to people who needed clothes. Everybody was homeless. They used to, they named the school after him, Weil Elementary School, because he was also on the school board, which is now Rosa Parks Elementary School. So so that that kind of is the... I guess the fabric of the kind of people who built this up. In the 1900s, this area was the biggest theater district in San Francisco. What we have now in theaters is minuscule compared to what was here before. And a lot of people who worked at theaters lived in this neighborhood. Now, the Schmettles, Schmettles, I know I'm butchering their name, owned this piece of property and had a house sitting here that was destroyed in 1906. And then when they were able to recover, they built this building. So this building was built in 1913. And these windows you see down here were servants' quarters. And our apartments, it was actually a hotel. And it was a hotel mostly for the artists that worked in the theaters around. So when you go in like, my apartment, which is one bedroom, there technically were no bedrooms. It was, was, my bedroom was a dining room, and my living room, they both had Murphy beds. And so we had a lot of people that lived here that were dumb waiters that came up into the apartments. And as those dumb waiters came up into the apartments, then servants lived next door, and they would come over from the apartment next door and work in the kitchen, and they could go out the back door. and So it was very high class, and the ballroom was down here. So this building is kind of typical of all the buildings that were around here. And if you were to look at the historic uh, register, you'll see that most of the buildings in this area are on the historic register because right after 1906, they started to build the area up again. Um, the guy that built this building, the architect who designed this one, Frederick Meyer, also designed the Bill Graham Auditorium. He also designed the uh, Playhouse Theater, which mm. is another hotel there. I can't think of the name of it, but it's the Elks Club, yes. which is the most beautiful swimming pool in the city. Yes, He designed all of that, and he did other buildings, and he was on the selection committee for the architect they picked to design the new city hall. So it was very vibrant here in terms of artists and architecture and just, I'm going to say French culture, but just all kind of culture was down here. And even though we're 100 years later, 107 years later, Mm -hmm. it still has that vibrancy to me. So when I moved to San Francisco, I lived in Park Merced, it wasn't beyond the fog. It was in the middle of the fog. Yes. Every single day. <laughs> I had a friend who lived down here, and I'd go, you know, what's the weather really like? <laughs> and it'd be like 30 degrees warmer. Right. Uh, and then she knew how much I wanted to be in the middle of everything. So she had a friend that lived here. When my son went off to college, she called me up said, I'm coming to pick you up for you to see an apartment. And I ended up in this building. So I've been here since 1991. 
I walk out of the door. I don't know which direction sometimes I want to walk. It's so much about this neighborhood that has changed. I find myself being typical San Francisco. I used to be so much better, you know, because <laughs> it has changed so much. Uh, but it's still, to me, outside of the fact that in the next block at Hyde and Post is the busiest fire department in the United States. Wow. They have been in the Guinness Book at one time for being the busiest fire department in the United States. And I am shocked you haven't heard one fire truck come down the street because usually it's one an hour. Uh, Jason Cortez was a firefighter there, so in his memory, the young man that just died. Mm -hmm. um, I heard about him. Yeah, that was where he worked. So uh, it's one of these neighborhoods where that's how close we get. We know our firefighters. We know our store owners. My sister and I, when we do decide to order something to eat, we'll go to Bamboo or we'll go to Sutter Pub. And every time they deliver, they say, thank you for continuing to support us. And that's because we just, I have a, such a love for this neighborhood and the people in it. And I think there's a lot of things we need to fix yeah. and do better. But tell me a place in the world it isn't like that. True. I just love that you just invested your heart and yourself into this neighborhood and people just know you, you know them. Like to have them show up and say, hey, thank you for your continual support is remarkable. And, you know, as people walk by, everyone waves <laughs> at Shelly. Everybody knows Shelly. <laughs> it's great. And that's my friend Angela. Mm. We used to get bored and do crazy stuff together. <laughs> like put on International Women's Day, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Oh, things. we have nothing else to do. Let's do an event, you know. Yeah. Small things. Yeah, small <laughs> things like that. So, Amazing. But, yeah, that's in this building, actually, we did a big party for 2013. The building manager, he went out and um, found all this great history on the building. And the photography you see in the lobby, some of it is his, but some of it are photos that he found about the building uh, when he was doing research. We have, like, old... Um, census from the 1930s and wow. things like that he found out and he found the original blueprints and that kind of thing so they used to all be in the lobby and we did a big hundredth anniversary party but angela and i with the building manager threw a couple of holiday parties because we wanted to meet our neighbors mm. and as a result right now we know our neighbors that's amazing you knock on somebody's door like george who is like the best baker in the world every holiday he would put cupcakes out and he always did it at 9 a.m so you go out at 9 a.m in the lobby is like five of us standing out there going, <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> he comes off the elevator going okay okay <laughs> <laughs> he stopped doing it recently and mm. I, I keep we keep telling him how much we miss his cupcakes but that's just the level in this building of the kind of people that you have and and to me, it reflects the neighborhood. There's a tunnel, which none of us have seen, but so allegedly, there's a tunnel that leads from this building underground to Geary Street, to the whatever that Alcazar Theater or something that's over there. I'm not sure where it comes out. I can have that part wrong. But... 
that's just how closely tied this building was to theaters. So I moved here in 1991. You can imagine how many people that lived here have died, right? Mm -hmm. They're long gone. And one was this little petite, she must have been four foot 11. I mean, she weighed 90 pounds soaking wet. But she used to dance it for the uh, Zigfield Follies. Wow. So she had these little bitty costumes. I'm like, is that a headband? You know? Because <laughs> that's what it would have been for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's, no, girl, that's my skirt. Those <laughs> are my pants. You know? But there was that kind of excitement. You know? I remember sitting out, going out in the lobby, and this Danish woman who we just adored, I can't think of her name, she was sitting out there crying. I'm like, are you okay? What's wrong? Well, she had gotten really ill, and her, she was waiting for her daughter to come pick her up because they were taking her back. And she said, I just don't want to leave. I just love this place. I love you. I love the people. And it's like, I knew you, you just know. And then in the apartment at the end of this little garden was Gilda. Mm. And we loved us some Gilda. Oh, my God. She also was about 4 foot 11, would always wear like 5-inch heels, and she was 89 years old, and she was still going to bingo twice a week and going to the racetrack all the other days. Wow. And she played poker. She had trophies all around. And so Angela and I were kind of her caretakers. She'd call us when she needed something. Angela took her to the hospital all the time. Mm. So I'm in Paris, and they call me on the FaceTime, and it's, it's Gilda calling to say, I just called to say goodbye because I'm so tired of living. She's sitting up in Kaiser Hospital, you know, and I'm like, girl, stop it. Just stop it. And she's like, no, I just, I'm done, Shelly. I just can't take it anymore. I just came to say, I just wanted to call and say goodbye to you. And I said, okay, I'll see you when I get back. Goodbye. Then later on that night, I'm laying on the friend's sofa, and all of a sudden I feel this old hand, like, touch me and just hold my hand. And, I, and when I woke up in the morning, I was like, okay, let's call Mommy and make sure she's okay. And my sister calls me and says, Gilda died last night. I said, that's who came? She came again. She said, I meant it, Shelly. I'm saying goodbye. And so when we cleaned out her apartment for her, I mean, you just found this life. Mm traveling around the world, playing in polka contests, her journals, and we cleaned it out for her sister, Genevieve, who will be 100 years old on December 28th. Genevieve calls me up two, three times a week. Oh, Shelly, how are you? Um, so I have this order from Instacart, and I don't know if it's going to show up, if it's going to be right or not. Anyway, do you use Instacart? Do you? And, and I'm like, you call her. I called her one time, and I called her back. I said, I called you earlier. You didn't answer, so I'm just checking on you. She said, I was doing my calisthenics. I exercise every morning. And I was like, I don't. <laughs> but that's the relationship that came out of that relationship. That's how beautiful the people in this building are. And again, in this neighborhood. The store across the street, the owners, the family that owned it just sold it. And in the 30 years I was here, I watched the kids grow up. Mm. I watched the, the whole family take on the business. I watched their dad died. And when dad died, I would go over and just hug mommy. They were married for like 60 years. 
And then she started to get really ill, and eventually the brothers just decided to sell. And that, to me, was a big loss in the neighborhood. It's different now, you know. But you still have good people. have two places in the world that I love and it's San Francisco and Paris and they call this part of San Francisco the Beaux-Arts district one because of all the French people that used to live here the amount of French architecture that is here or even just the attempted honoring French architecture like what Frederick Meyer did here but the consulate is at the end of the street it's at at a post in um, Kearney used to be over on Sutter Street. The Café de la Presse, the Le Centrale, all of those restaurants, their history is steeped in the French culture here. My favorite, absolute favorite place is now closed, Jean Doc Restaurant, where you went to an event we did there. And it's in the uh, Hotel du Cornell at Bush and Powell. The owner of that hotel, Monsieur Lambert, is... Probably one of the most incredible men you will ever meet. He's originally from Orleans, and we did this fundraiser. Everybody was like donating, and we were pay- I went to pay him for the food, and it's like, Shelly, everybody else donated. I'm not going to charge you. And he donated for that big event that we did there everything. Wow. We came in, I thought we were going to have dinner down in the restaurant, which is. Every piece of it is artifacts he brought back from his home city of Jean d'Arc, of Joan of Arc. The hotel rooms are beautiful. I would say if you ever wanted to do a staycation, that's where you go. I have put friends up there from Paris, and they just love it. And he does everything from his heart. I remember I took your dad. I took Willie Brown, and a group of us went. And then he calls me like a month later. He says, Mr. Brown... He has booked another dinner here. He's bringing six people with him, Shelly. And I was like, oh, my God. Of course, that didn't sound anything like a French accent. I'm sorry, Claude. Uh, but he was so happy. And, and the food is just uh, superb. Mm. But they've closed because everybody was, you know, getting up there in numbers and age. And it just it made sense, although I cry every day. I would love the moose. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea that this neighborhood was so heavily influenced by French culture. Isn't there like a French academy or institute? The the Alliance Francaise. Yeah, it's on Bush Street. Yeah. Between Hyde and Larkin. Or Pokin. Yeah. Larkin. And it also is so amazing. There was so much theater. And, you know, theater people, me being a former theater person, they're the most interesting people in the world. Of course. Yeah. Of course. As a person who ran a theater, you know I understand. But uh, because they worked seven days a week and did a couple of shows a day, they were really overworked and they didn't make that much money. So the Elks Club, the San Francisco Elks Club, is Elks Club number two. Out of all the Elks Club, it's the second one. It, I have an Elks Club pin because I was a member. And those pins are highly coveted. Mm. And that Elks Club was created specifically to make sure that the actors and stagehands and everybody in this theater district 
could get a cheap meal and had a place they could eat because a lot of them stayed in single occupancy rooms with no kitchens and, you know, and they didn't really have money to buy food because they were living, you know, hand to mouth. And that's why that Elks Club came into being. This not only a theatrical district, an entertainment district, but philanthropy is like at the core of its being. That explains why the Metropolitan Club and all those other clubs are right here, because of the theater, because they were all hotels. Oh, all the clubs were hotels prior? Yeah. Yeah. This was a hotel. Right. Yeah, and most of the apartment buildings around here were hotels. They were hotels. That's why they look like they would look, you know, they're Ah, they're older and the rooms are a certain size. Like, so the Metropolitan Building, I don't know for sure we can look in their history, but Mm -hmm. I'm guessing that, that just like this, that was also a hotel. Uh, Obviously, um, look yeah. at the lobby. Yeah. Well, I believe all, there's so many clubs here. There's the Elks Lodge. There's the Olympic Club and mm-hmm. the Metropolitan the Club, Metropolitan, the Pacific Union, and and it makes sense because it has a, the Metropolitan Club has a pool. Yeah, as does the Elks Club. Right. Hotel, but the hotel right next door to us, I think it was built in 1926, and their rooms are small rooms. And it's kind of the same, you know, history. But they have small rooms. This area, the planning code doesn't allow hotels to be built anymore. But if you put a hotel in a building that used to be a hotel, then you can get a permit to do it, like, over the counter without telling Shelly, who lives right next door, which is why we had a fight. But because of that, they weren't allowed to change the size of the rooms. So if you went in there, although... It's very modernized. If you walked in a room, you would get, you would see how small the rooms were, the kind of views they had. It was, it's a beautiful building just on its own. And um, you would see that there's not much has changed in terms of it also having been a hotel for local residents. So these were mostly residential hotels around here. I had a question for you. You were on the planning commission, which really literally helped shape San Francisco. Did you always want it to be a part of that aspect of community, or? Uh, no. <laughs> and organizing that was that Willie way. Brown. <laughs> <laughs> How did that happen? I was the director of the Bayview Opera House, mm-hmm. and I had a plan. Bayview Opera House is a nonprofit organization and theater in the Bayview Hunters Point community that was built in 1888 by the Masons that gave it to the city in 1968 during the riots, and the city renovated it into an art center for the community, and it's funded through the San Francisco Art Commission, which at one time Blanche Brown was a member (laughs) and and one of my greatest advocates. Mm. And uh, we actually took kids from Bayview because it is the most economically impacted and environmentally impacted community in Northern California, not just San Francisco. And we took kids from there to Paris and Senegal Wow. Uh, with the film crew, uh, Miss Thing over here. <laughs> Miss Susan Brown. Miss Susan Brown. And we took them, and these are kids, only one of them had ever been on an airplane before. It was, Susan will tell you that I was dehydrated because I cried through the whole trip. Every time I saw the kids learn something new, I was like, oh, wait a minute. my babies, they're just growing up. But we, we exposed them to things, and we brought the ballet there. We did opera there. The whole idea of using the facility for community. And I wanted to create a brand-new building 
which would have a banquet hall on it and offices and classrooms and then expand out and use the school building to do affordable housing grand plan. And I took it to Mayor Brown and said, I, I either need you to give me $3 million <laughs> or give me $3 million worth of city services to do this. And I explained the idea. He said, that's a fabulous idea for an infill project. And he said, we'll call a meeting. And the next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call going because of that idea. I'd be a great candidate for the planning commission. And I'm sitting there going, okay. And in my mind, I'm saying, what the hell is the planning commission? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was on the environmental commission. And I knew there was this thing called the planning commission. I mean, I knew vaguely what it was about. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay. And so that's how I ended up there. And so I got online and watched every planning commission I could find on uh, SFGov TV and talked to people I knew that were once commissioners. And I was scared to death day one. I was scared to death. But my name is now on important positive projects in the city. And it's an honor to yeah. be part of this city's history. It really is an honor. And I fought a lot of things that I think shouldn't have happened here. And it's an honor to have shut those bad things down. Right. <laughs> so you know, that's how I ended up there. And well, what had you say yes? Willie Brown. Willie has Brown. It, has anybody ever told him no? <laughs> no. Susan, has anyone ever told uh -uh. Willie Brown no? I guess not. No. You, <laughs> when he calls you up, he's thought about it. Mm. When, when I first met him, he was running for mayor. And I was the co-chair to Barry, a black journalist, and I was putting on our annual cabaret, and he was running his first time for mayor, and he came so he could meet people. But it had been raining, so as always, he was on time, but they were not. And I saw he was, he was getting a little antsy. I didn't know him yet. He was getting a little antsy, and I walked over to him. I said, you must have another event you need to go to. And he said, yeah, I need, you know, we got a tough schedule. I said, let me see what I could do. So I went in the room, I told Barbara Rogers, who was the MC, to cut whatever she was talking about short, let's bring Willie Brown in because he needs to go. And then I came back out, I said, okay, she's going to finish in two minutes and then you're on. He said, my God, you're a great facilitator. And I was walking on a cloud for like a month, I was like, Willie Brown thinks I'm a great facilitator, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and, and I just... I just always have felt that I, um, I have always admired him, no matter what other people say. When he came to be mayor, he said he was going to build affordable housing for seniors, fix our transportation system, and get more services for young people, safe havens. for. And he did it. He did it. And that was, to me, just... Keeping your promise and being honorable and loyal. And I just I want to be like him when I grow up. <laughs> and I just admire him. And then, of course, he got the greatest daughter in the world. We get to hang out and talk. We get on the phone, we'll start talking like you do with her creative ideas. Yes. And we do have a few we're going to make someday. But it's just he's family. That's great. He's family to me. Yeah. So at that point, you were the director of the Bayview Opera House for how long? I was there for 10 years. Wow. 1997 to 2007. That was my three-year assignment there. Mm. 
I said, I'm going to do two years here, and then I'm moving to Paris. Okay, I'm going to make it three years. I'm moving to Paris. You know what? It's been 10 years. I'm moving to Paris. (laughs) You know, so, but you can't help but love it. Mm. It's a beautiful old building. Obviously, I like old buildings. I tell everybody all the time, it's built in 1888, and the Eiffel Tower was built in 1889. Bam. (laughs) <laughs> we we got you beat. <laughs> so it's just it's a the people that I met in the community that do theater, Mary Booker who died a couple of years ago, the community people who came out to support it, Espinola Jackson and folks like that. Bayview is like this incredible community of people who understand environmental issues. I mean, I would go to them to ask them questions because they knew more about CO2 emissions than scientists did because they were being so impacted by it. And I've never seen a community work harder than I did Bayview in terms of dealing with the environmental issues and coming together as a community. I just, I couldn't leave. I loved being there. Besides the Opera House, as the commissioner, the planning commissioner, correct? Mm-hmm. What are some of the projects that you're most proud of? Well, I think the um, not having Home Depot project. <laughs> Home Depot was trying to get the location on Bayshore, and they were not being genuine with the community. And I told them I'm not supporting anything that doesn't support my community. And the community really wanted them. So I made sure that there was a lot of what they call conditions of approval in their permit, that if they didn't do it, the community could come back and say they're not meeting the conditions and the permit could be taken. I kind of in my gut knew that they weren't planning on building there anyway, and they didn't. They got it approved and then sold it to Lowe's. I met the woman from Lowe's. I wasn't even on the commission anymore, but I met the woman from Lowe's, and she said, we're meeting every single condition. And Lowe's has been a true community partner. So I'm glad that I made it hard for Home Depot. I'm glad that we cut down the size of the building to where Home Depot didn't see it as a profitable place, but it was perfect for Lowe's. And Lowe's has been a tremendous supporter from training to funding to everything of the baby and hiring the community. And so I feel very good about that one. I want to name one that, the one that I hate them, <laughs> that broke my heart because I didn't know. Mm. And that was in the beginning when I got on the commission, we were at the height of all of this, um, the dot-com. And so people were like evicting folks and using the Ellis Act and turning buildings into these condos. And this guy had gone through that and the Ellis Act period is over. And we cannot deny a project based on the fact that they're evicting people if they followed all these rules. And their lawyer was just an arrogant bastard. And there was this tall guy. I mean, he had to be 6'3", built like a linebacker, standing in front of us crying like a baby because he had lived in a building for 25 years. Where the heck was he going to go? And that's what he was saying. Where do I go? Where do I go? You know, and he's crying. And all I went, I was like, I couldn't deny the project. Fast forward two years, I'm in there, and I realized we didn't really understand the whole process. And I had a right as the president to table that item to the call of the chair. 
which I was chair for two years, so that we can get a better understanding. And I have a feeling that if I had been able to utilize that power that I didn't know I had, project probably never would have happened and those people would have retained their places. And I think that's the thing that I'm talking about when I say I see the, you see the good and bad in people and you really learn the hidden agendas. And it's just sometimes so sad and when you're looking at the law, you have no choice, but you start looking at the people it's impacting and you just want to scream, you know. I've learned so much today. I'm I've, glad I could heal. Oh, it's amazing. It's amazing to be with you. You're, you're such full of life. I, I'm blessed to be here. Yeah. I mean, COVID's taken a lot of good people off this planet. Yeah. So we have to live in gratitude every single second. Every single second. Every single second. Yes. And just the whole embracing humanity and loving other people. This It's been a lesson for me. I mean, I actually got really pissed off at something the president had done, and I put it up on my Facebook page. And Monsieur Lambert responded with, people should be promoting love. And I was like, yeah, that's right. He didn't put back in there, you should be promoting love. I said, oui, papa, je suis désolé, pardon moi. And then I just, and I've never put another negative comment up. And you don't even realize how much it changes your energy mm-hmm. when I, you let that go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Only thing I put up right now is vote, 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 vote. That's all I have up there. It's all about November 3rd for me. There's nothing else I need to say. 70 million people as of today have voted. When it was Yeah, when it was 50 million people, we were at 40% of the registered voters in the United States had voted. It's going to be more people. Election Day will be empty because we all will have already voted, you know? That has to be a record. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 70 million people have already voted? Yeah, now we got to do is hope it'll get honored. Mm-hmm. You know, I think what we're seeing here is the someone's found all the holes in the Constitution, and that's the next level of work we have to do. Yeah. But I think the beauty of Black Lives Matter and everything that's happened is we're moving beyond, you know, you were the first African-American this or that. It's like you were just a good this or that. And you don't have to, we're not explaining to our white friends why something they said hurt because I think everybody is conscious and aware of it and all I ask is that we all start thinking about what's happening my neighbor across the street that owns Max Cleaners Chinese she bought 50,000 face masks at the very beginning of this pandemic and donated them to the city to give out to essential workers. And Aaron Peskin, our supervisor, came by and got them. Wow. So we have all of our communities, the whole tribe, the whole rainbow tribe of people are doing loving things. And if we just stay there, we just stay in that sense of love, then everything's going to work out just fine. Wow, I feel warmed and fuzzied after listening to Shelley talk again. 
don't we just all adore her? I I don't think we can ever say that enough <laughs> about this woman. <laughs> she's just amazing. So she was so fun to talk to. She's just so fun, right? And we could probably go on and on and do a separate episode about her and and maybe we'll have her back again. I think we should. Maybe we'll That's all go That's a great visit. idea. We'll meet her in Paris. That's it's a incredible. great idea. I can't yes. wait to go to Paris. <laughs> right? Perfect. Oh, wonderful. Well, next week we have an equally amazing person. Jay, can you tell us about our guest? Yes, our next guest is Ellen Schumer. Ellen is the historian and the docent for San Francisco City Hall. And I remember when we greeted her, she was this tiny young lady who <laughs> was dressed to the nines. Yes. And she insisted that we sit right next to City Hall because, you know, City Hall is currently closed. And uh, to sit there and be with her and just have her go through every single detail about the building, the history of it, and what to appreciate when you go there was so great. Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to have you guys listen to our conversation with Ellen Schumer next week. And until next time, we look forward to uh, seeing you soon. But wait, don't but go wait. yet. <laughs> Make sure you follow us on Instagram. We are at Beyond the Fog Radio. We're also on Facebook. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to follow us. And please tell all of your friends. And please feel free to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Yep. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. See you next week. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. <laughs>